A happy Thursday morning to you all. Welcome to Frankly Speaking. I'm your host, Larry Frank. We're coming to you live from beautiful Bentonville, Arkansas. Beautiful weather today. Sunny and in the 60s. And right out of the gate, we have NFL breaking news. Adam Schefter is reporting that the NFL will go on and release the dates of the schedule on May 9th, as originally was planned. Once again, they will be releasing the schedules as planned on May 9th, and then if they have to alter the schedules afterwards due to these challenging times we're facing with COVID-19, they will do so. And, you know, this is leadership at its finest. You know, I praise Roger Goodell. The man is showing his true leadership qualities and running his business as normal as possible under these conditions. And, you know, we, we've said this before, adversity, that's when you understand or recognize your real leaders. How do they handle it? How do they face it? And Roger Goodell is doing everything the virtual draft there was no i don't think it ever crossed his mind that they were going to cancel the nfl draft which will be going on next thursday one week from today it's just incredible the leadership qualities this man is showing and then you go to other sports like major league baseball you look at that and you see what's called the lack of leadership. And yes, I'm going to go on a rampage. I'm at my best when I do this on Robert Manfred. Robert Manfred is showing day after day that he lacks the leadership qualities it takes to be commissioner of Major League Baseball. You know, I'm listening and Joe Madden's on an interview yesterday saying, you know, and in all fairness to Joe, he's just given his opinion that baseball could be back four to six weeks. Four to six weeks. You're hearing a lot of players starting to lean that way. And what bothers me about Robert Manfred is if you look at him from the whole time, even before this, let's go back to last year. Let's talk about leadership, okay? It's opening day. Cincinnati Reds, I don't know who they're playing. He's doing an interview, and he's drunk doing the interview. Now, it's opening day. It's a new season, and you're going on the air drunk. First of all, you should expect to be doing an interview on that day. You're a leader. You need to plan for these things. And Rob doesn't plan real well, and we'll get into that in a little bit. That's number one. Number two, if you know you've been drinking, why the heck are you going on TV? What are you thinking? Where's leadership, baby? It's not there. Then you look at the way he handled this whole Houston Astros cheating scandal and even the Boston Red Sox. You know, first, the Astros, you know, gave him all immunity. He, he is so afraid to make a mistake that he can't end up making a decision. You know, he came out a couple weeks ago saying, I have the uh, final uh, investigation on the Boston Red Sox, but I'm not going to announce it until we start the season back up. 
Why not? You know why? Because you're afraid. You lead in fear. And the same thing is happening with Robert Manfred right now. First of all, if you listen to Robert Manfred, he's saying there is, I don't have any plans in place. Okay, what the heck leader doesn't have a plan? If you don't have a plan, then you're going to fail. Nobody can say, okay, I'm fine if Robert Manfred is, comes up to me and I invited him on this show and I would interview and I would ask him, Mr. Manfred, do you have a plan in place to start the season? Okay, if he says to me, Larry, yes, I do, but I'd rather not reveal it at this time based on current situations until we get a more clear um, you know, idea of what's going on in the world. I am fine with that. But for you to come out and say you have no plan in place, that is not a leader. What leader doesn't have a plan? You're taught that in business 101. Okay? You're f you know, you, if you fail the plan, you're planning to fail. Okay? It, it, it's as simple as that. So when you know, Roger Goodell, you listen to him answering these questions. He's afraid. He is leading in fear. He, if it's up to, Ro um, I'm sorry, not Roger Goodell, I apologize. Robert Manfred. If you listen to Robert Manfred, he's constantly saying, you know, you can just feel it out. He does not want to be the first sport back. I don't care what you say. He wants to be the follower, not the leader. He doesn't want it coming back on him saying, we told you so, Mr. Manfred. We told you you shouldn't have came back and played baseball. Now look what happened. Somebody got sick and now we got to face this. You know what? There isn't going to be a right time. There's always going to be that possibility of someone getting sick. But he is running in fear. When you look at people like um, Adam Silva of the NBA, uh, you know, McMahon of the WWE, uh, Roger Goodell, we just said, of the NFL. Those are people that are, they even told the president, Mr. President, we want to lead. We want to come back first. We want to unite the United States of America. Please, please let us be the ones that lead, lead the nation back. That's leadership. That is 100% leadership. Now, a couple weeks ago, it might have been two weeks ago, the president had a conference call uh, with all the leaders. And again, yesterday, he did the same thing. And he is telling them. If you have not heard, I will break it to you right now. He's telling all the commissioners, I want you to do what is ever necessary to get sports back in society. We need sports. Now, he's not saying do this at the risk of, you know, uh, possibly risking lives or getting anybody injured. But he is saying the time is coming. I'm telling you, folks, I've told you this before. Baseball will be back at the end of May. The NFL season will be here. The question's going to be, 
whether they are going to perform in front of fans or not in front of fans. See, you know, I just moved to Bentonville, Arkansas. I'm fired up for, you know, Wu Pig Suey and the Arkansas Razorbacks. I want to hear sounds like this. The 20, to the 10, to the pylon, touchdown! Collins is the tailback, but Allen's in the shotgun. Brandon gets the snap. They fake a jet sweep. Give it to Collins straight ahead. He's got room to the 40. Collins to midfield. The 40. The 30. Collins at the 20. To the 10. To the 5. To the pylon. Touchdown, Arkansas. Alex Collins, 80 yards, and the Hawks are up by two scores. Collins is the tailback, but Allen's in yes, the shotgun. That, Brandon yes, gets the snap. Yes, yes. The Razorbacks score! The Razorbacks score! The Razorbacks score! That's what I want to hear. College football. And I think a lot of the fans' perspective is finally getting to the point where having sports on TV is better than not having any sports at all. Yes, it may be a little while before we get the okay to go in big crowds again till a vaccine is available, but... We just want to see a live baseball game on TV. You know, I heard them talking yesterday about, I don't know if you know this, but in um, either Taiwan or Korea, they're playing baseball. And I put a post on my uh, Facebook page the other day showing a home run in one of the games. They actually talked about, you know, maybe showing some of those games just so we get to see a little baseball. You know, we are all missing sports dearly. And, you know, the college football is talking about a lot of different things. See, college football wants their fans there. You know, the fans are, I mean, they're a big part of every sport. But I guess you get in a little bit different situation with college because if the student body isn't allowed on campus, now you're running into a whole different scenario. Some of the plans they're working on is maybe starting the season a month later or possibly even go into a spring season. You got to remember the amount of money that a college football, college football brings in 85% of the revenue that an athletic department makes in Division I sports. It's the money maker. It is by far the moneymaker. If you took it out of the school, the athletic departments would not exist because they couldn't afford it. Want to remind you, uh, a little bit later on in the show, we're going to have the son a former Cincinnati Reds great, Vader Pinson, on the phone with us. Vader Pinson III will be joining us a little bit later in the show to discuss... You know, quite a few things, but mainly we're going to be talking about his dad's career and why isn't this man in the Hall of Fame? It just doesn't make sense to me. So we'll be talking a little bit to him about this. Also tomorrow, we will be talking a little bit of Jacksonville Jaguar football and even some Florida Gator football. Uh, with Billy Lawson, runs a couple of those fan pages on Facebook. So we'll be talking about that, the upcoming draft uh, for the Jacksonville Jaguars. And also we will be talking about, you know, what's, what to look forward to 
if and when the Florida Gators play football this year. Then on our NFL Monday, our football Monday, Greg Orman, the staff writer for the Tampa Bay Buccaneers for The Athletic, will be joining us live. That's this Monday, Greg Orman. We'll be talking about the Buccaneers, among other things, and who they may go for in the draft on Thursday. So a couple of shows in a row here where we have some great, terrific guests you won't want to miss. Also want to remind you, if you have any topics, questions, concerns, maybe a question you'd like me to ask Greg Orman on Monday or Billy tomorrow, go to our first email address, frankly speaking, 528 at gmail.com. We are on Twitter. If you're not following us, please start following us. We put a lot of great things on that page. At Larry Frankis. That's with the U.S. at the end. We have a Facebook page. Frankly speaking. Go down. You'll see my face with the beard. Then you'll see some podcasts with a baseball stadium there. Go ahead and like us. Follow us. Listen to us. You can even leave a message there if you like. And we'll get it on the air as well. So lots and lots and lots of different ways to get in touch with us. Uh, through Facebook, Twitter, and also, let's not forget, on this podcast, there is a link that you can leave a voice message uh, letting us know what your thoughts uh, or questions might be. Now, when we come back, we're going to talk a little bit first about some big moves that, yes, our very own Arkansas Razorbacks have made for the upcoming basketball season, uh, capturing a couple of different recruits. And we're also going to be talking about this transfer portal, which my good buddy Dickie V does not really like. And he's going to explain why. But before we do that, we're going to go to a break and hear Dickie V's tip of the day. have the ability to mentally be tough when things get tough. That's what life is about. Because it's never going to be smooth. It's never going to be easy. It's not going to be simple. You have many times where you have to have that perseverance and that drive and that determination. So it's up to you to develop that. To develop that strength of character. That strength mentally to be able to survive when those tough times happen. And when you overcome them, oh man, you overcome those challenges. It becomes so meaningful and so exciting. Well, we'll come back to Frankly Speaking. I want to remind you, in a little bit, we're going to have Vader Pinson III coming on to talk about his dad and the great career he had and what it's going to take to push his dad into the Hall of Fame. Now, a couple news in. First, let's talk about Arkansas basketball. Two big things yesterday. They have signed Vance Jackson, has transferred to the University of Arkansas. He originally played at UConn in New Mexico. He's 6'9", 230-pound forward who averaged 10.8 points per game, a little over five rebounds a game, and he shot 30 35.3% from three-point range. Because that's Vance Jackson. Then 
Devontae David, a four-star recruit from Jacksonville, has signed a letter of intent to join the Arkansas Razorbacks. He was 83rd on ESPN Top 100's list. In his senior year, he averaged 21 points, 10 rebounds, 8 assists, and 3 steals. So, some great, great news for the Arkansas Razorbacks who have lost a couple of players already uh, who have declared themselves eligible for the NBA draft. So, this is some good, good news. Those Razorbacks are starting to look good. Eric Musselman. i tell you one thing about Musselman. The guy doesn't stop working. Even during these challenging times, you see him by himself, whether it's on a basketball court or at his house, always thinking about how I can make this Razorback team better. I'm telling you something. This team is going to be a top 10 basketball team next year. And you really, really want to watch them. Now, we're about to hear from my good buddy, Dick Vitale. And coming up here, I believe in a couple of weeks, if not sooner, is this vote that college basketball is doing about allowing players, basketball players, just like the other sports, to do a one-time transfer where they are immediately eligible. And... Dickie V doesn't sound like he's a big fan of this. Hi, everybody. Dick Vitale. Hey, one of the real topics among coaches today and among people in basketball is the transfer situation. Right now, in May, supposedly, they're going to be voting on whether or not to make players eligible immediately one time that they can transfer, like they do in many other sports. Let me tell you this. Number one, I believe in freedom for players. However, saying all that, you talk about chaos? You talk about wheeling and dealing and some cheating going on. I mean, think about it, especially the mid-major stars. Kids that go to a mid-major school and all of a sudden they blossom. Schools are going to be rating them like you can't believe. And what about guys that are non-starters at the elite schools? People are going to be whispered in their ears, get out of there, man. You're not getting the playing time. Come with us. Oh, yes, there's a way to be the middle of wheel and deal. Trust me, it will happen. Not good for the game. Chaos will reign supreme. Coaches will be like prisoners. Players will dictate, man, every move they're going to watch they make with a player, whether they're not going to be able to keep the kid or not. I don't think this is healthy for the game. Now, people will argue, come back and say, well, look at this. Coaches have the freedom to march on, and they're not penalized by sitting out a year. But how many coaches are we talking about versus the transfer in terms of college basketball? I mean, I agree, number one, with the fifth year player. That's fine. Let that stay. And here's, you want transfers and you want to get kids eligible immediately. Three factors should prevail. Number one, if a coach agrees that the kid should move on, let him move on. Number two, if there's a coaching change, he should move on. And number three, if a situation where a mom, a dad, or a guardian, somebody really responsible for that youngster, passes, he should be allowed to play immediately. No if, but what's, no exceptions. Those three factors prevail. Hey, let me tell you this. I love the game, and I love kids. I like to see them have every opportunity. But I don't want to see the game become an absolute cesspool. Because I'm telling you, the wheeling and dealing and cheating that will prevail will be off the charts. And we don't need that in college basketball. We have enough that's gone on. Bottom line is, I don't agree with this rule at all, allowing that kind of chaos to prevail. And you know what? 
I 100% agree with Dickie V. Not because he's Dickie V. He's right. Just think about it. You're a coach. You piss off a kid. And, you know, nowadays, and I'm not knocking the Millennium Group or anything like that, but people are a lot more sensitive. Every little thing bothers them that much more than it bothered us 20 years ago. These kids, like he said, it's going to be a cesspool. It's going to be complete chaos with kids saying, I don't like this way, I don't like that way. Now, if you listen to the three things he said about, you know, if the coaches allow them, obviously a death in the family or something of that sort, Dickie V has good points. Those are situations I agree with. There are exceptions to every rule. But as far as this rule goes about uh, just allowing people, you know, all over the place to transfer, I completely agree with Dickie V and disagree with the NCAA. You know, it, it just amazes me as I, you know, I constantly get Twitter reports and things of that sort, but the amount of outpour that everyone in this country, you know, and I'm, I'm including the athletes as well, are doing to help others out. You know, in a time of need, these challenging times, you see everybody coming together. You see all these different teams from Major League Baseball to WWE to NBA to NHL to NFL constantly, constantly giving more and more meals. They're feeding people in need. They're helping small businesses who are suffering. It, it's it's just so good to to see all of us just uniting together to help each other out. Um, I do want to also take this time while we got a few seconds um, to thank all the doctors, nurses, CNAs, health officials, paramedics, and so on. I know there's so many people, the truckers, the people working in restaurants, uh, the uh, grocery stores, the Walmarts, you know, for everything they are doing to make this challenging time that much easier for us. I mean, they're the ones in the trenches right now. They're the ones, you know, really stepping up. And I just, from the bottom of my heart and from my entire staff here, I know I speak quite frankly speaking, we thank you very much. While we're on the topic of the COVID-19, the coronavirus, you know, last night, my good, my good buddy and friend, I love tweeting him, Jay Glazer, broke a report about one of the Rams players um, getting the, who has had the COVID-19 coronavirus. It was about center Brian Adams of... Yeah, I'm correct, the Los Angeles Rams. And he broke this yesterday, and for some reason he took a lot of flack for it. I want you to first hear it, then we're going to discuss it. As you know, on Fox Football, now we break news. We've broken it the last couple of weeks. This is a news item I would hope that I would not have to break. We had Sean Payton on a couple of weeks ago as the first member of the NFL family that we knew that had the coronavirus. And now I'm here to report... We have news of the first player 
to test positive for the coronavirus. It is Rams center Brian Allen. Now, I talked to Brian this morning, and he said he got it actually about three weeks ago. And the first thing he said was, quote, I woke up three weeks ago. I couldn't smell anything. I lost all sense of smell um, to the point where I had smelling salts here. I cracked them open, put them to my nose, and nothing happened. Then he lost his sense of taste. He said, all I could feel was texture in my mouth. Literally, it was the only sense I had in my mouth. And he said, I then got periodic sore throats. I would just get really fatigued. My throat would start burning. Everything felt different than every other flu I've had. He then got headaches and stiff. He'd get tired. He has to sit, sit down. I asked him how long did these symptoms last. He said, those lasted for about three or four days. But he was retested again last week. And he tested positive again. But Brian told me that because of the length that he's had it, as of Thursday, he will actually be in the all clear. So his symptoms have cleared up except for the taste and the smell. He said doctors have actually told him uh, a range of when he's going to regain his smell. Uh, he said it was anywhere from six to eight months, but he's actually six to eight months. But he's actually regained some of the smell already. So he's not really sure what information to go on. But again, Brian Allen, we're glad that, and Brian said to me also, look, my case wasn't as bad. This is a real life, life or death situation. That's not what my situation was. So we're glad, we're happy that Brian Allen is able to pull through this. That was Jay Glazer on Football Now. And, you know, I don't understand why Jay took so much crap for that. You know, a couple of people last night saying, well, that's not breaking news. We don't know why you call that breaking news. Well, let me explain why Jay does that. And I'm not, I did not talk to Jay, um, but I'm giving my opinion. That's what I do on this show. I tell you like it is, whether you like it or not. What Jay did was he, inform, he informed the sports world of a well-known named center for the Los Angeles Rams. And what this does is sometimes people in our society, and there's still people out there right now that do not understand the severity of this illness. They, It's like, it won't happen to me. It won't happen to me until it happens to somebody they know. And one of the things sports fans seem to recognize is sports athletes. And when you hear that an athlete has gotten it, somebody you watch play every Sunday of every football year, it starts hitting you. It hits you a little bit harder because these athletes are like family to a lot of us sports fans. We watch them. We grow up with them. Some of us will never, ever meet them, but we still feel like it's they're part of our lives. Just like when you listen to a sports show like this or like any of the other great sports shows out there, you become used to that routine. It's like a radio show in the morning. You don't know necessarily the disc jockey. You know, um, Bobby Bones, a great example. I love listening to him here in Arkansas. I don't know Bobby Bones. But he's part of my life because I listen to him every morning. And when he's not there, you recognize that. So for people that knock Jay Glazer, I think Jay was doing a 
big credit to people to try to get them to understand this can happen to anyone, can happen to you, can happen to me. All he was doing was letting the people know this is the first player, the first player in the NFL. Remember Sean Payton uh, had it. Tony Buscelli was a former player. He had it. But this is the first active player that has had the coronavirus. So, Jay Glazer, you did nothing wrong. Keep up the great work. And I know myself and my listeners, we love listening to you. So thank you very much, Jay. When we come back, we are going to have Vader Pinson Third, the son of what I believe to be one of the greatest outfielders in the 1960s. His dad, Vader Pinson. We will be talking about him and also what is it going to take to get his dad into the Hall of Fame. We'll be back right after these messages. with a Gold Glove Award in 1961, a National League All-Star. His first two full seasons in 1959 and 1960, Vincent also led the league in doubles in each of those years and would rank among the league's top ten in this category in eight of his ten full seasons in Cincinnati. He also twice led the league in hits, at-bats, and triples, and in 1959, led the league in runs scored. Along with Frank Robinson, Pinson helped anchor one of the strongest outfields in the National League, a group that helped propel the Reds to the league pennant in 1961 and near pennants in 1962, 1964, and 1965. Veda Pinson was inducted into the Reds Hall of Fame in 1977. Yes, he was. In 1977, Veda Pinson was honored into the Cincinnati Reds Hall of Fame. Now, let's listen to some of these statistics, which we're going to go over in a minute. But in his first season, he batted 316, 20 homers, 80 RBIs, 21 stolen bases, 205 hits, and he led the leagues in runs, doubles, and outfield putouts. Incredible. He had more, Veda Pinson had more hits in his first five seasons than Willie Mays or Stan Musial. In 1961, he led the league in hits, finished second in batting title, and third in MVP voting. Only one of ten players now in baseball history, that's Veda Pinson, is only once again one of 10 players in baseball history with 2,500 hits, 250 homers, and 250 stolen bases. He also had five seasons of 20 homers and 20 stolen bases. Beta Pinson also has more career hits than Bobby Alomar, Ernie Banks, and Ted Williams, who are all in the Hall of Fame. Ladies and gentlemen, it is my great pleasure to have on the Frankly Speaking Hotline with us uh, Veda Pinson III, 
who is the son of the great outfielder from the Cincinnati Reds in the 1960s, Veda Pinson. Veda, how are you doing today? I'm doing great. Considering the first circumstance, I'm doing good. Good. I mean, how's you, the family, doing during these uh, unfortunate, challenging times right now we're going through? I completely understand that. You know, I've been looking at the uh, the Hall of Fame fan page page that you have. And first of all, I just want to tell you it's incredible. I love looking at that stuff. And yesterday, as you know, um, April 15th, as always, Jackie Robinson Day, when, uh, you know, the color barriers were broken in professional baseball. And I happen to be looking through your page and one of the pictures that caught my eyes, and you probably know where I'm going with it, is the one with your dad where he was getting a drink of water out of a faucet that had the sign that said colored next to it. And, you know, I think a lot of the people of today's generation don't realize it wasn't just the ability of the ball player back then, but the mental aspect someone like your father had to go through with all the racism that was there. Well, yeah, you know, um, you know, that's a really strong picture. You know, every time I post it on, I post it on Facebook every now and then uh, just to try, you know, to make, I guess you could say it's a, it's a history lesson of what the baseball players had to go through back at that time frame. Because, you know, it was, it was totally different than what the baseball players are doing today. You know, a lot of the African-American Ball players back at that time frame, they didn't even get to stay in the same hotels as the uh, as their counterparts who they play are their teammates. And you know, and my dad and, and it, look at my dad and Frank Robinson, Chico Ruiz, uh, and Leo Cardenas. You know, those guys they were very professional. It's like you know, it's like they held their their cool. You know, they they I, they, they were very professional. Just looking at the way that my dad handled the game at that point, you know, because even with him taking that picture, you know, I had that picture on my desk at work. Yeah, it's amazing. I mean, I, of course, wasn't born yet then. You know, I wasn't born until the mid-60s. But uh, I can only imagine, uh, you know, what they had to go through back then. Now, your dad, obviously good buddies with Frank Robinson. They played together uh, early in their careers for a little while. And a lot of people say that, Frank Robinson's, and I don't want to discredit what Frank Robinson's done, but a lot of people give Frank Robinson's career credit to Vader Pinson for what he's done. Because Vader, if I'm correct, batted right before Frank. And they said the way he set Frank up to allow him to see different pitches uh, from, you know, pitchers was incredible the way he played the game. Made him better, both the best, best players. But I think this, the only thing I think that my dad would have done more 
was, and I think a lot of people complained about because my father was really, really fast. And, uh, you know, I wish he had butted more. He probably got more hits off the bus than anything. You know, because they, they, they timed him at 3.3 seconds all the way down to first base. And if you go to take a look at my page, there's a picture where my dad hit a routine ball to the second base and he beat it out. So, you know, if I, you know the page, I, you know, I had never seen that before. When I saw it, I probably played it like 50 times over just to watch it. You know, because you, you don't see that in Major League Baseball today. So no. Like, the ball to the second baseman and beating it out just flatly, just like it was routine. Well, they said your dad was actually timed at one time from home plate to first base in 3.3 seconds. Yes, yeah, he was really fast. And I, you know, I always thought when I was younger, I was always fast. And they said, oh, you just keep that from my dad. And I didn't know what they meant by that because, you know, me growing up, I was, I, I was born in 1963. And, you know, I really didn't get the opportunity to see my dad play in his prime. But now, you know, I went back to Cincinnati, Ohio, uh, back in August to get a bobblehead for my father. And, you know, people, uh, you know, I got to see a lot of my father's tapes and to watch him play. I think that, you know, a lot of people have forgotten, him, you know, his, his career, you know, because if you go back and you look and I look at how graceful he was in center field out there in Crosby Field, he looked like he was like a ballet dancer, you know, not many people could handle. You know, one of the guys who showed me a picture of my father catching a routine fly ball in center field at Crosley, and he would show me somebody else. It seemed like it was really difficult to manage the Crosley center field position at that time. Yeah, and I mean, I look at your dad's statistics, and, you know, I know statistics doesn't tell it all, but some amazing facts. You listen to these, and you probably know these already, but for our listeners, and I mentioned it earlier, he's only one of 10 plays in baseball with 2,500 hits, 250 homers, and 250 stolen bases. Um, he also had five seasons of 20 homers, and 20 stolen bases, and he had 127 triples, and you talk about the speed, I mean, that goes without saying, and he was only under 250 hits shy of 3,000 hits. Do you think that your dad, the first 10 years anyway, playing in Cincinnati, maybe instead of places like New York, where, you know, there were some great center fielders back then, of course, Willie Mays, Duke Snyder, Joe DiMaggio. Do you think playing in Cincinnati might have hurt him for his bid for the Hall of Fame? Well, you know, a lot of people say that, you know, because I, I read a lot of that in the news where they're saying that if he, was, if he played in New York or someplace else, he would be in the Hall of Fame. But when I went back to, to Cincinnati, Ohio, Cincinnati, Ohio, I, I was amazed because, you know, here in the Bay Area, go see the Open A's play. You know, you see, uh, you know, you see the you know the people come, but not like it did in Cincinnati. Cincinnati, Ohio, is like has a big following of baseball fans. I remember when we were doing the bobblehead, and they were getting ready to have the game. It's like you couldn't even move. It was like the president, uh, the president of the United States, or somebody. They were going to have a big old concert. You couldn't move. It was so, so many baseball fans. And I, you know, I think it might have played that type of a role back then. But now, I, I wish my dad had played now, but it would probably be totally different. Because the Reds. Uh, you know, uh, they, you know, I, I don't even feel like they represent my father well in the, in the Hall of Fame there because you basically have to look for his information. And, uh, you know, I, I posted a, a, a mural that they did, uh, not a mural, but a tape of what they have of my father. And, 
it was it's really exciting to see, you know, and listen to it. Because if you listen to it, you're like, why don't they have more, uh, you know, more information on my father? And even in the society, it's a Hall of Fame. But, you know, the Reds are a great organization, and I think that, you know, they were the first baseball team, too. So I, everybody says that, you know, and it's, it's, it's interesting. And I think that if my father went, if he gets in, it would be a blessing. Because I think then I, you know, I, I would be very happy because I would love to, you know, stand up there in the Hall of Fame and say, hey, you know, and talk about his career. Vade, if you were to go in the front of a bunch of baseball writers right now, and they say, we're going to give you a minute to tell us and sell us on the point why your dad should be in the Hall of Fame. What would you tell them? I would tell them to go back to 1960. Go ahead and take a look at all the outfielders that they had during that time frame. Put all my father's, all the records on the books from 1960s to 1970s. And look at those records, and that would prove where my dad would stand to be in the Hall of Fame. You know, I think that that would prove that would prove his prove the point. Um, because you have to look at my dad played with Hank Aaron, played with Willie Me, Willie Mays, Orlando Cepeda, and the pitching Bob Gibson, Sandy Koufax. I put a picture of my father getting a double off of Sandy Koufax on on my page, and the players he played against. You know, I think that. Because, they, because that kind of during the 60s to the 70s had so many Hall of Fame players, I was wondering, well, maybe they say that they don't want to put any more people in from that time frame, but that was a great era. You know, they had a lot of great baseball players. So if I started playing today, he would be a, a, a million-dollar baseball player at this point. You know, and you, and you have to think about it, because he played with Kurt Flood, uh, you know, Pete Rowe, uh Frank Robinson. You know, and, and, you know, I was, I think that that was sort of the point. Just go through those records for that time frame, watch the films, because the films play a big part also of, you know, because you know, we eventually have to watch somebody play, you know, because a lot of people like the Reds, they did a, an all-time uh, Reds team. And um, my father, they, they, my father came in like second, 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 because they, they went with, I forgot the name of the player that they, they went with. They went with players that they could only remember, you know. So, I, you know, I just think it's, it's just reviewing the films and looking at my dad's face. I know I went over a minute, but. <laughs> no, that's fine. I'm not timing you. I was just use that as a guideline. You're fine. Yeah. yeah so, you know, because you know, well, even me, even now today, because I was born during the time when my father was actually in his prime. And when I go back and I look at I, when somebody shoots me a film and they send me pictures and, and show me newspaper clippings, uh, you know, I try and put them on the page so that my father would, won't be forgotten. You know, because when you look at, when I look, every time I go back and, and I put a, 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 a piece of film on the page where it shows my father, you know, roaming center field, and he just looks like he's so comfortable and playing that position. That's a really tough position to play, especially probably still from what I've learned. You know, because I don't remember being in Crawley Field, but, you know, I just remember the way that a lot, when I went to Cincinnati that they talked about how hard it was to play that one position. Yes. Now, you mentioned Pete Rose a little bit ago, and, you know, if you listen to, especially the early interviews with Pete, Pete gives your dad a lot of credit for his early success in baseball. Yeah, yeah, because when, you have to remember, when baseball... When my dad 
and the African American players were coming up, you know, the times were different, and a lot of the players during that time were were family based teams where you know you, you knew that everybody was going to be on the team. And my dad and Frank had gotten really really close because a lot of the ball players wouldn't talk to the African American ball players because they knew what was going to happen if they were going to actually get the spot. And they kind of basically did the same thing that Pete Rose because my dad, uh, you know, I have a book where it's I where I was reviewing it where my dad got Pete Rose his first roof service and he said thanks made up for the roof or he signed this book and it was really really cool to see that because the, the Rose family and our family is just still close. You know, I talk to Frank's first wife um, on on Facebook all of the time and she always asked me how my mother's doing and everything and uh, because her and my mom were really good friends. And, you know, uh, they were really close. It was a tight knit, you know, because, you know, like everything on the job, if you have somebody that's doing better than you, you know that person's going to take the lead. That's, that's And in baseball, it's the very same way. If you have somebody that's better, they're going to replace us. You know, but back in that time frame, it was different. And a lot of people would speak to you until they got to know you. You know, because even my dad, one of the things about my father, and a lot of people don't know that before you got to meet my father, he is very shy. Like when I first was growing up, I was kind of the same way. Everybody was like in my ear talking about your father's big baseball. I didn't already want to speak. But my dad was like that playing baseball. And they thought my dad didn't speak English at once. <laughs> they thought he was Puerto Rican or something. It was kind of funny. When you read them, when he said, no, he, that, he spoke to them and he advised me to you. I just think this is a, he was a really shy person. I think that played another role in his, you know, not being as flamboyant as some of the other ball players. Well, I'm talking to Veda Pinson III, the son of the great Veda Pinson. Veda, I'm going to put you on the spot here a little bit, my friend. Um, If your dad was still alive today, Uh with knowing everything about Pete that everybody knows right now, would he say Pete deserves to be in the Hall of Fame? baseball people, you know, finally get it right for your dad because I'm a firm believer that your dad definitely deserves to be in the Hall of Fame. And believe me, when it does, and if it does, I like to say when it does because I really hope it does, there's going to be a big celebration, buddy. And I want to thank you so much for allowing me the time to speak to you today. Thank you also. Stay safe. You too, my friend. That was Veda Pinson III, 
the son of the great Veda Pinson. We'll be back right after this break. What a great, great conversation with Veda Pinson III. And if you guys want to see, he does have a Facebook page. It's incredible. I highly recommend you go to it. It's um, Veda Pinson III uh, Hall of Fame Facebook page. Just look up Veda Pinson and you'll find it. Just a great, great tribute to his dad. Incredible. And we definitely want to thank him. For being on. I want to remind you, if you have any questions, thoughts, concerns, topics you want to talk about, please contact me at franklyspeaking528 at gmail.com. You can also reach me at my Twitter account, at Larry Frankis, with the U.S. at the end. Also, I have a Facebook page. Go down to Frankly Speak and look for my beautiful face with the beard. You'll also see pictures of my podcast with the stadium picture there. Like us, listen to us, follow us. We want to continue to provide you with great guests like Veda Pinson III. And tomorrow we have another great guest on our show, Billy Lawson from the Jacksonville Jaguars and the Florida Gators Facebook page will be joining us to discuss the Jaguars and the Gators. And then on Monday, Football Monday, the great Greg Orman, the who works for The Athletic and is a staff writer for the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. We're going to be talking the draft. The draft is next week. What better guy than Greg Orman? You don't want to miss that show. Ladies and gentlemen, I want to thank you so, so much for joining us today. Please stay safe during these challenging times, and we'll talk to you tomorrow. God bless.